Hildy is a body, chain-smoking, 70-something former journalist who lives on the Upper West Side in an apartment that has a portal back to 1973. Time travel has rules, though, and Hildy breaks them by traveling back with slacker healthcare aide Trista. Now, both women will have to come to terms with their pasts before they lose their chance at having a future. From Ahoy Comics comes Elisa Quitney's Guilt, that's G-I-L-T, a comic book that's Sex in the City meets The Golden Girls by way of The Twilight Zone. Grab a copy today from your local comic shop or your local bookshop, or you can get one by visiting alisaquitney.com guilt, that's G-I-L-T, or of course you can get one from the big online retailers, and I've put a link in the show notes to make the whole process easier for you. Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. We are back to start Chapter 5 of Peace. This has been a long time coming. Uh, this chapter, we're only doing four episodes uh, for the recap, and then we're doing a singular discussion episode. I can't imagine this will be two discussion episodes. Uh, but this first recap, the episode today, is going to be covering pages 283 to 290 in the Orb 2012 edition. I'm, I'm pretty sure that you have just guaranteed that, in fact, we will have a three-part discussion for this <laughs> chapter. That's, that's the way it goes. <laughs> we'll be talking a lot about goose quills, I think. I think that's likely. Well, thanks to our listeners in between covering Chapter 4 and Chapter 5 here, we have reached another stretch goal on Patreon. And so... Brandon and I have teamed up with Brent, who is my co-host on our Neil Gaiman podcast, and we have covered The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. I, I really enjoyed this. Every time we do an episode with Brent, I know you get to see him a lot and he's your childhood friend, but I, it's always such a pleasure for me to, uh, I don't know, sit in on your friendship with him and, and, and participate and talk about stuff we all love, especially this Chesterton novel, which has influenced you know, both Gene Wolfe, we've talked about Chesterton in relation to peace already. He's, he's uh, mentioned in the novel and then his relationship with uh, Neil Gaiman as well. And boy, what a fun novel to read. What a great discussion. I hope everybody checks it out. But today, as I said, we're talking about peace and this chapter is called The President and it opens with some doctor's office stuff and then Primarily, we're going to be talking about a letter. So let's just get into that, Glenn. Right. As you say, Brandon, this chapter is entitled The President. And I think that we're going to see pretty quickly that this probably refers to Weir in his capacity as the president of the company that Julius Smart founded. But, uh, you know, we like to argue about everything here. So I'm going to leave some room open here to say maybe it doesn't refer to that. But all right. So the chapter opens with Weir back in Dr. Van Ness's office. He's doing the thematic apperception test with the cards. We come in in media res as the doctor is telling Weir that his answers have been pretty long-winded. And while, you know, that's been helpful and informative, it does mean that they have run out of time because the doctor needs to see another patient now. And so he wants Weir to leave for a while and then come back after regular hours uh, in the afternoon so that they can go over the results. And that's fine by Weir. But as he is leaving, he asks the doctor what Margaret Lorne is in for. Of course, she isn't Margaret Lorne anymore. So he has to explain that he means Margaret Price. 
And this interaction lets us know that Weir has told Dr. Van Ness about Margaret Lorne. And so, yeah, maybe what we have been reading, right, this entire book, or at least most of it, has been the answers to these cards. This is something I think we've gone back and forth on, changed our minds about quite a bit. So we'll talk about that. But there is a bit more in this section before we pause. Now, this section ends with Weir back in his office, uh, his office as president of the company, But it really is the real office this time. It is not the replica in his museum mansion. He tells us that he interacted with his secretary, Miss Burkhead, on the way in, and then he describes the office to us. And this comes in the form, really, of describing how he changed the office when he moved in after he inherited this position following Julius Smart's death. The big thing that he did was to get rid of Julius Smart's old-fashioned, very heavy wooden desk and replaced it with a type of light-colored wooden blob desk that was very popular in the 1960s. He also changed the carpet to orange because, you know, orange juice is what they make here. Uh, They make it out of potatoes, but still orange. Orange is their thing. He also has a bar in the office, and this is probably a change given that the Julius we met in Chapter 3 was a, a teetotaler. But at any rate, whether or not this is a change that Weir has made, Weir pours himself a scotch from this bar. He finds the scotch very refreshing. It's also really important to Weir that the office be decorated with photos of himself from his time working for the company as an engineer. And he tells us all about these pictures, though he also tells us that there aren't that many of them. And on this note, I actually want to backtrack just a bit to when Weir left the doctor's office. When he returned to the waiting room on his way out, he saw some employees of the company, and he asked one of them what he was in for. And Weir says this, And only afterward did I realize that he thought I was checking up on him. And Brandon, I just wasn't sure about the meaning of this phrase. Is your understanding of this that the employee was worried that the boss was asking him why he wasn't at work? Like the boss was trying to make sure it was really a serious reason to take time off work? Yeah, I mean, that is my understanding here. This is uh, a classic managerial euphemism, I think. And we're going to see more throughout the chapter how people interact with Weir. And we're going to have to make sense of Weir's sort of objective reporting of just the way people interact with him as a boss. But I mean, back to this moment. Yeah, as I said, it's a it's a euphemistic type of engagement, you know, like, oh, are you actually okay? It's like, you know, oh, so and so is late for work, so I'm just gonna give them a call and make sure they're okay. That's never why a boss is calling. They want to make sure you have a good reason for not being at, at work. There's a kind of passive aggressiveness to it. There's a, a weak threat behind this type of of euphemism. It's a lame exercise of power. At least that's how I read it. And Weir is aware, I think, in this moment. Uh, of the potential for him to come across this way. And maybe he feels bad about it. Like the reason why he's saying this is, oh, people think I'm this rough boss. I'm aware I might come across this way. But honestly, I was just trying to make sure they were okay. And uh, he sort of accepts that he's the boss and people are going to respond to him that way. Yeah, I think it was just the phrase checking up on, which I'm with you. That's a euphemism that uh, bosses use, but they don't usually use it when they're, well, not talking to the employee, they would say, I wanted to make sure he wasn't malingering or something right, something right. like that. So the fact that he used the phrase to us, the audience, was uh, sort of confusing to me. And so, I'd, yeah, I just wasn't quite sure how to how to understand the, the tone there. But we have seen this type of thing before uh, where Weir is very aware of how people view him now that he is the, the boss. Right. And, and it's going to 
be more evident, as I said, in the way this chapter unfolds, as we see the way people think about Weir and engage with him. You know, but I think in this opening section, Weir is telling us something interesting about himself, something that maybe goes back to chapter one, where Weir, as he remembers his Christmas at his maternal grandfather's house, Mr. Elliot's house, uh, he points out to us that he has always loved oranges. And and that moment there, when Weir says this in chapter one, reminds me of Julia Smart's story, where he says that he has some ideas about oranges that would make people pay attention. What I'm trying to get out here is that as we learn about Weir's office, we also learn that he might be over-identifying with what he's supposed to be doing or performing as the CEO of the Orange Juice Factory. But ultimately, it really does come across as a performance. And maybe he enjoys performing in this way, but he finds relief when he can drink a regular scotch instead of making a screwdriver, which is what he drinks publicly. And he makes a screwdriver with the orange-flavored potato powder. So he really (laughs) tries at least to be what he thinks people expect him to be. I'd personally find that exhausting, but I really do get the feeling that Weir enjoys being accepted, uh, but I would never have an orange drug in my office. That's a bridge too far. Yeah, no, I would never do that. And and hey, the good news is that neither you nor I have any ambition to ever be the president of a company <laughs> like this, just, or work f- there at all. Like, it's just not an ambition we have, so we're, we're fine. We're good on that count. Yeah, though we're often good at acting, I think, against our ambitions. So who knows? We might end up in a factory like this <laughs> one day. I, I, do. Yeah, I, think, I think you've just dared us to start our own orange juice company, which, I don't know, that could be an experiment. <laughs> that could be an experiment. Experiment. It would fail, I think, ra- rather quickly. So I, I have one thing to say about the uh, Dr. Van Ness business. Yeah, Glenn, you pointed out this card stuff. I think we're going to save that either for the Chapter 5 wrap-up episode or our total wrap-up episode when we think about the structure of the novel. But what interests me uh, about this Dr. Van Ness business is the way that Weir shifts his interests purely to Margaret Lorne when in chapter one, he's super interested in Sherry Gold, even though he does ask about Mrs. Price. So now he's really interested about why Mrs. Price was in the waiting room. And that's kind of all we'll get about Margaret Lorne, I guess, for the novel. That's pretty strange, I think. That's a strange note to end on, though we got a lot about her in the last chapter. In any event, this section and this chapter really are preoccupied with things other than Weir's love life. So I feel like last chapter might have been the the chapter that was more emblematic of Weir's love life. This chapter is something else entirely. Yeah, I think this is very similar to the first chapter in that regard, where the, the middle chapters two, three, and four of this book have really been focused on Weir's love life in various various ways. And then the bookend don't really have that. But but as you say, we will quickly be indulging ourselves in a forum to talk about the structure of this book <laughs> at greater length. So I will I will table it till then. Right. Well the rest of what we're covering on this episode is going to come in the form of a letter written to Weir. It is a letter that is sitting on his desk, and this is an image that we've had before in this book, the letter or letters on the desk. The letter comes from Charles Turner who is the dog boy from Julius Smart's story back in chapter three, and who had shown up at the plant in chapter four. And the letter opens by thanking Weir for the nice time that he showed him during that encounter back in chapter four. 
And then there's some small talk about life as a carny, but the bulk of the letter is an incredibly sad, incredibly tragic story. I think we're going to want to deal with that story on its own. So here, before the pause point, I'm just going to talk about the details of Turner's life first. And what he chiefly writes about is books. Books are a big deal for carnies because they can't afford and also don't have the space for nice books, but they also can't get library cards. And so what this means is that they can only get paperbacks, and unless they're in a college town, they can't get anything that he really wants, which is Dickens and Proust and the Russians. His one story, in fact, about being close enough to a college town to get some good books reveals that because of his hairiness, he doesn't himself go into town to shop. He has to have someone else do that for him. In this particular case, the guy who did that for him thought it was funny to spend all of his money on nine copies of the same book. Uh, It was Mark Twain's Life on the Mississippi. This is a note, this is a touch that I really, really liked. This feels not all that dissimilar to Life in the Army, and I would like to think that Wolf is actually drawing on some real-life experience here. Uh, Also, it's pretty clear that Wolf really wants to write a book called Reading Proust in the Circus or something like that. <laughs> I think that's his ideal life is uh, working in a circus and reading uh, great classic novels. I mean, that was my experience in the army, coming out of high school, uh, having a high school education, getting a job in the army that gave me lots of time to read books and just wanting to devour the books with the most pages that I could find in the bookstore. And many of them were classics. And it was uh, I was a great, great time in my life. I have a lot of nostalgia for it. But, you know, as you hinted at, Glenn. Those those hairy man interludes in the last chapter were the anchor point for chapter five. And we've talked about how Wolf has these interludes in each chapter that give us a preview of what will happen in the next chapter. And those meetings with uh, Bill Bratton, while Weir was the president of the company, show us that at some point, Weir became friends with Charles Turner here and also uh, preview what the opening of the next chapter is going to be like. So, yeah, Charles Turner, again, this is the same name of the kid whose parents wanted a dog boy in Julia Smart's story of the trip to the small circus, you know, where he helped that boy who was dying. And there are some other hints that we get that this is the same boy. But I mean, the big reveal that this is that Charles Turner is at the end of the letter, when the letter is signed, you know, Charles Turner. So Wolf's technique then isn't to reveal this up front. It's to give us a sense of overlap with some clues about who is writing the letter, some resonances. And I think that that is what happens a lot in this chapter. We get these odd resonances with the rest of the book. But in this letter, and particularly in the opening, we see that there's the hairiness of the man, the fact that the author of the letter's mother wanted him to work in the circus instead of an industrial job. And so, yeah, my experience reading this letter for the first time until I got to the end was this this feeling of eeriness. As I read this letter, I felt drawn back into the circus narrative from Julia Smart. And it's a really brilliant technique, if inscrutable. And that story was decades ago. So one of the things then that is easy to miss or or just overlook about Turner is that Turner himself is late in middle-aged at this point, but he's called the dog boy whenever he's referred to as his, in terms of his role in the circus. But he is not a boy. He is older than you and I are now. He must be in his 50s, at, at least at this point. 
It's entirely possible he could be younger. I mean, we do get the sense that he's contemporaries with Weir, but what we have to remember uh, about this moment in chapter three where Smart is telling the story is that while Smart is telling this story, Weir tells us that he is embellishing it. And so now we're like, what is true and what's not? Something we're going to talk about in our wrap-up episode for this chapter. Um, But let's look more at some of the new information that we get here. We have this business about Charles wanting to read more Dickens and Proust and Jane Austen, as he pointed out, you know, and this discussion of this, this Charles expressing this desire acts in service, as I read it, to Charles agreeing with a comment that was made over dinner where Weir said something about how outsiders have some sort of special insight into the moment of the now. And that's because the outsiders are not swept up in the riptide of norms that dominate culture. And so they're better able to examine them. You know, I guess this is something that Weir said. This might be the case. We don't know exactly what Weir said on his side of the conversation. But all we know is that Weir said something about outsiders being all right, because everyone who's an insider eventually becomes an outsider when the fads or trends they're attached to change, and they're kind of left holding this ball. And I wonder if Weir said this to comfort Charles for some reason, who may have been expressing some concerns about his outsider status, about not having a normal job in a factory or on a farm and being hairy. Or if we're said this more in reference, this stuff about outsiders, uh, to talk about how he feels about himself, his own life in this town that sort of passed him by. But still, it seems as though this section of the letter is meant to reveal something to us about Weir's friendship and his ability to have friends more than it's about the books that, that Charles Turner wishes to read. And I think there's a a longing here. I think that Weir has a a sense that maybe he would have liked to have been a Carney too, that his life is not the life that maybe he planned out for himself, though he did plan out a life for him and Margaret Lauren, of course, that then didn't get to happen. And, And without that happening, perhaps he might actually have just liked to have joined a circus, to run away and join a circus, which is, uh, at least in the, the middle part and early part of the 20th century, was a thing that most kids felt as a desire, as an impulse at at some point. And so I think all of this discussion about freedom and being outside or inside and and how that changes your perception and so on betrays some longing, though it's the type of longing that, you know, is the the grass is always greener on the other side. Absolutely. And and we've brought up maybe too many times how this novel is uh, the middle section or the bulk of It's a Wonderful Life, right? Where this, this novel is the part of the movie where Jimmy Stewart's character has died and is seeing what has happened to the town. And that's kind of the feeling you get from reading this novel is that Weir has has missed the stuff that he wishes he could have done. And so he's always thinking about what could have been with Margaret Lorne, with the town, with his life if his parents had stayed. And so he's always thinking about these these missed opportunities. But I want to return to the books that Charles Turner talks about. And I don't think it's an accident that we're told that Charles Turner got nine copies of Life on the Mississippi. I mean, that novel or memoir really could have been 
an influence on Wolf's conception of this novel piece. I've not read Life on the Mississippi. I've read actually too little Mark Twain, but from what I've read about Life on the Mississippi, I gather that it's a memoir about how Samuel Clemens came to be a riverboat captain on the Mississippi. In that book, the river itself and the region around the river is the sort of main character. Uh, There's lots of scenic descriptions. And most importantly, perhaps in terms of overlap, Twain's narrative is intertwined with tall tales. And maybe that's why, as I said, we get this nine copies here of the book. It could be read, you know, as a classic bit of Wolfian misdirect. This guy's playing a joke on this other guy, and we don't need to look too closely at the man behind the curtain. But I I do think that Wolf is saying, hey, I I had some of this kind of writing on my mind when, uh, when I was thinking about writing peace. No, I think he absolutely did, right? I mean, Mark Twain is the American writer. Certainly that was true at the the time that Wolf was writing Peace. I think we might might have some other candidates for that now because it's been, well, it's been uh, almost 50 years, I guess, actually, at this point. It's it's hard to believe, yes, but yeah, 50 years, nearly since this novel was published. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I think that definitely he had that in, in mind, just in, just in terms of that, that you know, Peace is a book about America and Americana. That's Twain's whole oeuvre. And this is the book that is a, a memoir rather than a, a novel. But I also think that this idea of wandering up and down this river in this boat where you know you're constantly journeying and that journey is really a self-contained world it's the whole thing is a, a metaphor for what wolf is doing here in in peace as well it's also a kind of metaphor for what it is to be in in the circus as well so i think that is really the perfect choice it is also uh, one of only three books by twain that i have read so i've read one more than you have uh, i think <laughs> yeah. the other two are probably the same right it's, right. it's huck finn and and uh, tom sawyer right yeah and uh yeah i feel like i need to know mark twain better than i actually do so i, w- I would love some suggestions from listeners especially if there's something speculative that we could uh, fit in on i don't know elder sign i guess or atos would be great to know but okay, let's let's actually get to this episode that Turner really wants to tell we're about the actual heart of this letter. And this is the story of a teenage girl named Doris. Her mother has been dead for a while, and now her father has just died. Her father had had a wife before he married Doris's mother, and that woman runs the restaurant at the carnival. Uh, it's burgers and fries, mainly, it seems. But anyway, before he died, Doris's father instructed her to go live with his first wife because he's been sending her a lot of money as support for the daughters they had together. So now Doris is here at the carnival in what is basically going to be a wicked stepmother story. This woman is named Mrs. Mason, and although she only runs the restaurant here, that's what she does, she has quite a bit of power and and influence, clout maybe, because one of her daughters is a big attraction in what is called the girl show. And the girl show is exactly what you think it is. It is a strip club that operates within the carnival. Now, of course, Mrs. Mason resents the fact that Mr. Mason left her for another woman. She hates this girl, and she really does treat her like Cinderella. She makes her do all sorts of chores and jobs that she's never made any other employee do, and is generally just trying to make life miserable for Doris. Now, Charles Turner wants to help Doris, and so he's trying to set her up romantically with the carnival's giant, who is a shy young man. But before that really gets a chance to get going, 
Another woman who knew Mr. Mason shows up at the carnival. She had heard from Mr. Mason before he died, and Mr. Mason had asked her to check on Doris if the carnival ever got near where she lives, and hey, it has. So she takes Doris out and buys Doris some nice clothes, and something about this really upsets Mrs. Mason. And although Turner doesn't know what started it, Mrs. Mason wound up beating Doris with a hot frying pan, and she did this in front of other people. And so people tried to intervene, and then just a a big general fight broke out all over the circus. And then a few days after that, Doris killed herself. She secretly went to the electrical wagon, and she purposefully electrocuted herself and, and died. And that's Turner's story. That's the end of the letter. Uh, it's also where we're going to break today. Yeah, th- this all feels very important to the novel. <laughs> it feels like we should know who these characters are, like we're supposed to know who they are because we've met them before and this is them in disguise or something. But I, I can't place any of these characters, Doris or Mrs. Mason or Candy or Mr. Mason, because I have no idea how we could know them. And I think we get this this feeling of like we should be familiar here because in the letter, Charles Turner says that he and Weir were catching up at dinner about some folks that at least the way it could be read that they apparently knew in common. Yeah, it's very strange. I, I think that we have to imagine that Charles Turner knows about Julius Smart, right? Knows that Julius Smart in his brief stint in Florida as a, a chemist, as a, a druggist, saved his life and feels some kind of obligation to him in, or, or some kind of relationship to him. And maybe this is actually something that his his parents felt. And so whenever the circus has gone through Cashinsville, they have stopped and caught up with with Julius Smart, perhaps, I don't know, giving him a present, taking him out to dinner or something like that to, to show their perpetual gratitude. And so this is something that Weir has actually been involved in over the course of his life and so does actually know Charlie Turner. Charlie Turner is someone he's seen every five years of his life or something like that and has heard about the circus, maybe gone to the circus and so on. I, I feel like that is a type of backstory that's embedded in this, but we we don't have a lick of it in the book. Yeah, I mean, there's another way to think about it, too, which is to say that the circus narrative and smart story is all something that happened to Weir, and Weir just told it as part of smart story. We, we've we had this sense that there's some missing time in Weir's timeline that we've been getting. So that's another thing that could be the case, because we're told explicitly that Weir has embellished or added his own f- touches to that story by Smart. There's another way to think about it, which is to say that Weir met the circus crew as a result of Bill Bratton's uh, suggestion that the Orange Juice Company, named by Aunt Olivia, that they hire a small circus with a mechanical elephant as part of some sort of mail-in promotion for the juice. And that happened very early on in Weir's career as president. And he hit it off with the dog boy and learned about the story and learned that some chemist saved him uh, you know, decades ago and put that in smart story. It's impossible to know. You know, the point is, not none of this backstory stuff is actually dealing with the content of the letter. But I think that the, the reaction to reading this letter is really important because I think it, it might not just be putting me on my back foot, but I think any reader might feel the same way I do, feel like they're missing something huge 
when getting this information. I agree completely. This feels like it ought to be the start of a book or the start of some other story. But we're you know just a, a few dozen pages away from the end of this book. So it's a very strange choice to put this in here. And yeah, we're going to have a lot of work to do, I think, in the discussion for this chapter to try to uh, really unpack this. Absolutely. But let's talk about this story itself. It does, as you pointed out, Glenn, have a real kind of Cinderella feel to it. It's got a girl coming to stay with a wicked stepmother and two stepsisters who kind of try to destroy their stepsister. Um, you know, one of them tries to get her to turn tricks, which doesn't happen in the Grim Fairy Tale, but... Uh, uh, really terrible stuff does happen. And then there's, you know, a decent guy who could take her away from all this. There's a fairy godmother type of character. But this story in peace here in the letter has no happy ending. Doris kills herself. She endures the punishment and realizes there's no escape from it. It's a really cynical story, especially when you consider that just at the start of the letter, Charles is trying to get Weir some naked or pornographic pictures of Candy, who is totally complicit in Doris's death. Like, it seems as though that's a really strange move to make in, in writing a letter that Charles is telling Weir that the woman he's getting naked pictures of is, like, really good at kicking guys in the balls and, like, beating women. It's, it's, it's a really strange move to make. It seems incongruous, that's for sure, right? Yes. Like we're clearly Good supposed word. to not like this person, but yeah, you should check out how sexually attractive she is. Here's some great pictures. I I, I guess we contain multitudes, but it does seem <laughs> does seem sort of strange to me. But yeah, I think that the parallels with the Cinderella story are are fairly clear here. I mean, I think even just Doris as a name has, you know, the the the, the der part of, of Cinderella there in the name and the last name of of Mason, I think works with that as as well. But then if we're mapping these characters onto the Cinderella story, the dog boy is the fairy godmother in this story, and the circus giant is the the Prince Charming. But of course, yeah, this story does not have a, a happy ending. There's no glass slipper. There's no happily ever after. It's much more uh, realistic, right? It's much more like the type of life that a stepsister, a stepdaughter would actually be uh, experiencing in this early modern world, the early modern world of the, the Grimm Brothers fairy tale, than the actual fairy tale, you know, escapism has. And uh, it's it, it feels dark. Yeah, it's, it, this letter is really strange. I mean, but at the end of the day, what it, what it seems like is that the people that Weir was interested in, whether or not he knew them in common, he was they were known in common with Charles, that Weir was interested in the girls in the strip show and then also the Masons. And I, and I want to point out in closing here that Mr. Mason is a curious person in the letter. No one knows if he exists or not, even though they know his first wife. So everyone wonders whether or not Mr. Mason is dead or whether or not he ever existed in the first place and who is this daughter – so I don't know, maybe he's uh, a type of litho man and we've met him already. But as we've been saying, you know, and in closing here, I think we're going to have to do some real work on this letter uh, for our chapter five discussion episode. And I'm not sure we're even going to get any real answers on it until we get to our wrap up episode and uh, for the novel and think about how this chapter is trying to or not trying to tie up loose ends for the book itself. So on that note, 
that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. If you would like to support the network and also check out our team up bonus episode on G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Is Thursday, I hope you'll come join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. Next time, we're going to be reading pages 290 to 302 in the Orb 2012 edition. Until then, we greet you and say farewell.